The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, we have been going through the book of First Corinthians, but the week of just before Christmas took a break and looked at uh, the birth and the meaning of the birth of Christ as he entered into the world 2,000 years ago out of Isaiah 9-6. So we emphasized the birth of Christ last week. And this week, while people are still coming and going and um, I wanted to emphasize, well, what did Jesus do after he was born? He didn't just come and be born, and that was it. He came for a reason. So uh, that's what I wanted to emphasize today. He came as the Savior of the world and uh, ministered publicly for three years, and uh, he gave priority in his, his ministry as the Savior to teaching and preaching. Uh, that was one of the main things that he did. And so that's why we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, because it's Jesus' greatest sermon that he preached, as far as we know at least any of his sermons that were recorded in Matthew 7. Uh, so I want to look at a portion of that sermon. We can't cover all of it. It is so rich. It is so deep. It is so comprehensive. But we can look kind of at the apex or the climax of this sermon that he gave publicly probably to thousands of people in Galilee up in north towards his uh, hometown, but also where he had the center of his ministry, which was Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then a little off to the west, uh, there was a hill there. And Jesus had the multitudes following him from not just the surrounding area of Galilee, but also Syria and across the Jordan and even people from down south just flooding to him because he had already done some preaching and a lot of healing. That's what Matthew 4 says. And people, all kinds of people were coming to him who were sick. And he was healing every single one of them. So he had amassed a huge following at this time, almost at the apex of his popularity publicly. And as these masses and crowds of people uh, crowded in on him, uh, he wanted to teach them and preach to them one of his most important sermons about the kingdom of God and really the, what would become the Christian life and following Christ and what that means. And that became known as the Sermon on the Mount. And to have a platform where he could do that, where he could accommodate thousands of people and at the same time speak in such a way that they could actually hear him without a microphone he found a hill that was convenient there up in galilee and so he went up on that hill and he sat down and began to teach that's what matthew 5 says he began that's how rabbis taught that's how they taught during jesus day they would sit down and their disciples would also sit down and he preached sitting down well why don't you sit down when you preach pastor cliff well if i did that you wouldn't see me behind the pulpit so we're very practical here at the church. But anyway, go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 5. And I just want to read the introduction to this sermon. This sermon that Jesus preached goes chapter 5, 6, and 7. Again, I think it's just a good example that best represents the teaching of Jesus, the purpose he came. And we're going to look at one component of it, kind of the conclusion of his sermon. Matthew 5, verse 1 says, When Jesus saw the crowds... That's the, the crowds and the multitudes that are referred to at the end of chapter 4 there. Could have been thousands for all we know. He went up on the mountain. It's really a hill. That, mount, that hill actually didn't have a name before this. Just some unnamed hill. Um, it did after that. Uh, it made its mark with Jesus teaching it. And ever since then, it's been known by the church as the Mount of Beatitudes, appropriately so. A couple of years ago, Debbie and I were blessed to go to Israel for the first time, uh, courtesy of GBF, and had a tour of Israel. And we went to Galilee and Capernaum, and then we went over to the 
uh, western northern coast, and we actually went to the hill, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, and it's there because uh, that area is a small area, and so it's obvious it's got to be it. It's got to be the hill, and uh, we had a group of about 22, and the leader of the group said, Cliff, why don't you climb up there? Because I was like the youngest and only one that could do it. Uh, climb up there and read, read the Beatitudes from Matthew 5 to us, and so I went up on the hill of the Beatitudes and shouted out the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5 with just incredible memorable experience um so anyway that's where jesus was on this hill sat down and after he sat down his disciples came to him his disciples that's not just the apostles that's crowds disciples is his followers or those who were wanting to hear his teaching and those who were committed and loyal to him as students and who had been following him for a little time now sat down there uh, verse two he opened up his mouth and he began to teach and uh, he preaches this sermon chapter five chapter six and chapter seven uh, now go to chapter 7. At the very end, verse 28, Matthew seven twenty-eight says this. When Jesus had finished preaching, when he finished these words, which tells us that the Sermon on the Mount was one message. It was one sermon that Jesus preached. It's probably a condensed form that Matthew gives us, possibly. But it was definitely preached at one time. And when Jesus had finished these words in preaching, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were literally awed by Jesus' teaching because they had been accustomed to hearing the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees teach and they were merely human and they usually got it wrong and many times they twisted Scripture and they didn't always teach directly from the source of Scripture expositionally based on exegesis. A lot of times they were doing it filtered through tradition from the rabbis for hundreds of years and so what came off frequently was a distorted message that they were quoting men, not the Bible necessarily. And so that's what they were, they weren't used to, the crowds hearing this binding, authoritative, straight, undiluted truth that came from God. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't quote other sources. He was the source. He gave divine revelation. He was inscripturated for our behalf. But when he was done teaching, the people realized they had just heard direct revelation from God like never before. And it overwhelmed them. And that's why they were in awe. Who is this rabbi? Who is this teacher? He is different. He is unique. And that was their response. By the way, the word amazed has many nuances and overtones in it. They weren't just excited. Uh, They were blown away. Some of them probably, they were shocked. Some were startled and convicted. Some probably had great fear by what they heard. Some, no doubt, had unspeakable joy from the liberating truth they also heard. So in that word, amazed, all of those elements are contained in their response, their emotional response to what they had just heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. I did say some were shocked and some may have had fear. And that takes us to our text for today. Let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 7. Uh, 15 through 23. Prior to 15 through 23, Jesus was talking about there's basically two ways to heaven. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are going to go to heaven and there are people who aren't going to go to heaven. They will end up in hell. And Jesus makes that categorically clear. And you get into heaven by believing God and his word and his savior. And you can't get to heaven by your own good works. It's not what you do. It's not what I do. It's what God has done 
through the work of Jesus Christ. He's the only way to get to heaven. If you're trying to earn heaven on your own, based on your own good works and trying to please God and be a do-gooder, that is insufficient. That won't forgive any of your sins. You won't go to heaven on that path. And so Jesus says there most people in the world, unfortunately, are trying to work their way to heaven, appeasing God with their own self-righteous good works. That won't cut it. And Jesus said that is the broad road. And it's actually, it's the, um, it's the easy road. It's the accommodating road. It's not a road of self-denial. It's not God's road of truth. And it's also the road of works righteousness or self-righteousness, human works, human achievement thinking that I am good, I can earn my way, I deserve heaven, I can please God with my own human works. That was the broad road, and unfortunately, most people are choosing that road because of their love for their own sin, and that's what Jesus just finished talking about. The broad road leads to destruction and not to life. The the road that leads to life is very narrow, very narrow. Few there be that find it. But it's not a mystery what road that is. Jesus clearly delineated and laid out what that road is. It's following him and doing his will and believing his provision. It has nothing to do with self. It's denying self and it's submitting self to God's way, Jesus' way. And that's the narrow way that leads to life. And so Jesus encourages the crowd and the thousand that are there to be conscious of that and be careful and examine yourself and make sure you're on the narrow road and choosing God's path and the way of Jesus Christ and not the way of the world and the broad road that leads to destruction as he appeals to these people. And by the way, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's not talking to thousands of atheists or agnostics or critics or skeptics. He's talking to Jewish people who profess to believe in Yahweh, who profess to hold to the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, Many of these probably who were on a superficial level at least were loyal to Jesus and agreed, yeah, he's he's an impressive rabbi. After all, he healed me from being blind. I'll, I'll follow him and listen to him and give him a hearing and he's my teacher. And so it's for the most part at this point a sympathetic audience or crowd that he's preaching to. Nevertheless, he's giving them a stern warning and then he transitions into the sternest warning ever given to humanity by God and definitely by Jesus Christ, of all of Jesus' teaching, this one is the most sobering. So let's go ahead and look at it. Verses 15 to 23, as he's talking to disciples, as he's talking to professing believers. So being that all of us, or the most of us here, would be professing believers, this is relevant to us. This is practical to us. This is 100% transferable in our day to apply to our life, this warning, because it's a warning to professing followers of God. So let's go ahead and look at it. Um, I called it Don't Be Deceived. Uh, the title, that's a command. It's an imperative because there's an, that's how this passage starts out with a command or an imperative. We're obligated to do it. Don't be deceived. And he, that's what he's talking about. He's, this is a warning that Jesus is giving. Very typical of Jesus' teaching, by the way. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in an undiluted fashion and read all of it, much of Jesus' teaching you will find was warning, um, controversial. That's why he developed critics early on in his ministry and all throughout because he spoke undiluted truth that offended people, especially people who loved their sin. And so here Jesus knows true disciples need to be protected. 
True disciples need a clarion call to be warned and be awake and be sober-minded. Can't get lazy. We need to be aware. And so this is a warning from Jesus. If you're a believer, don't be deceived. And up front, we need to be reminded if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, we are all prone to being deceived. Can't forget that. If you get to a point in your Christian life, or just not even your Christian life, if you get to a point as a, as a human being, religiously speaking, thinking that you cannot be deceived, you're already deceived. We are all vulnerable. We are all finite. We are all weak. We all walk with feet of clay. We all stumble in many ways. We all have sin that lives in us, whether you're a believer or not a believer. So we're all prone to being deceived, primarily by two things. We are deceived by our own sin. Whether you're a Christian or not, sin is deceitful. So we can become blinded by our own sin. Every single one of us has at least one blind spot and probably many. That's self-deception, and sin does that to us. And another way that we are deceived is by Satan. Satan is the deceiver. That's his name. He's supernatural. He's invisible. He is powerful. He never sleeps or slumbers. He's always on the prey. His main target is the church and believers and truth. That's why Peter says and warns us, be awake, be vigilant, wake up, pay attention, beware your enemy, your enemy, your enemy. Some people don't like the idea that they have enemies. They can't handle that. I want people to like me. Too bad Satan hates you if you're a Christian. He is your enemy. He's your personal enemy. Beware. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around, present tense, meaning he's continually doing this. He never stops. Prowls around like a roaring lion. Uh, That's a, a creature that wants to destroy and kill and nothing else. Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's all he does. And he's doing it primarily against Christians and against the truth and against the church. So he's prowling around spiritually and visibly in our lives and in our church. The question for you, Christian, when was the last time you actually thought about Satan personally intruding in your life, trying to destroy you, trying to deceive you, trying to mess up your family, trying to mess up your personal walk with God, trying to mess up your church? If you haven't thought about Satan in a while, then you've already been deceived. So Jesus is consciously aware of this, uh, the reality of the deception of sin and of Satan, and hence this appropriate warning for us. It's a wake-up call. We need to be aware and not be deceived. And here in this passage, there's two primary sources that are doing the deception. It's uh, false prophets and then the false people. So let's go ahead and look at it. I broke up the outline just into five points to help with our transition and give us some continuity there. But it is a narrative passage, and we're going to read it accordingly. So let's go ahead and look at it. Do not be deceived. If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ today, you need this warning. I need this warning. And we need to apply it to our life with the help of God and his Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and look at this warning together. Uh, The first point of the five there is, uh, number one, consider your source of truth. Everybody in the world has a standard of truth whether they're religious or not. What are the principles by which you live your life? What are the principles and philosophies that guide and dictate your worldview? Everybody has some source of what they would call truth, even if it's relative truth. It's still their standard by which they abide. And as Christians, this is priority number one. We need to consider our source of truth. And Jesus starts off and he says to these disciples, beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
beware. This is an imperative. This is a command. This is an obligation. Uh, beware. Give attention to. Be discerning. Don't be lazy. Don't be passive. Don't let your guard down. Keep your eyes up. Keep your mind sharp. Listen carefully. Be a discerning believer. Present tense, continually, all the time. In other words, this is a discipline of the Christian life. Remember in the 1970s, this book came out on the disciplines of the Christian life. Bestseller, it still is. It's got some good things in it and some not so good things in it because some of the things in there really aren't biblical disciplines, but some of them are. But one that is not in there as a discipline of the Christian life in that best-selling book on the Christian disciplines is a command to do this, to be vigilant, to be aware, to be discerning. It's missing, but yet this is vital. This is equally important. This is a discipline of the Christian life, just as important as prayer, reading your Bible, having fellowship, discipleship, going to church, because it's all over Scripture. And it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. So what a priority it needs to be for the Christian. Beware, be on guard, look out. Beware of what? Well, beware of false prophets. Literally, it says pseudo-prophets. False prophets. Fake prophets. Counterfeit prophets. A prophet, a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. So what it's saying is, be on the lookout and watch out for people who say they speak for God when actually, actually they don't speak for God. They are deceptive. They're actually twisting the truth of God's word. And we need to be on guard for false teaching, false preachers, false spiritual authors. Beware of false prophets, pseudo prophets. Well, where are all the, well, we don't have false prophets here. I don't ever come across false prophets. I don't go out and find false prophets. I don't listen to them on television. I don't buy false prophets books. So some might think that uh, I'm not really vulnerable to this, but Jesus says, well, watch out for false prophets who come to you. You don't need to go find them. They're going to find you. I guarantee they are going to find you. Uh, That's what Jesus said. And that's what Satan's plan is. Satan is going to work through people to hunt down believers and to infiltrate the church with false prophets who bring what's the most dangerous weapon of a false prophet is false teaching. What's the most uh, powerful place that a false prophet can strike is your mind and how you think. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to either control your mind or tweak your thinking a little bit. It all comes down to your thinking and your mind. And false prophets primarily bring false teaching. Well, what do they look like? Is he talking about atheists or cultists or critics or weird, whacked-out religion? Not really. Uh, It's more subtle than that. He says... These false prophets that are particularly dangerous who can infiltrate the church and infiltrate believers, they come to you in sheep's clothing. A sheep refers to, metaphorically, a believer in the New Testament. So these false teachers, they look like Christians. What is the most dangerous kind of lie? Well, it would be the one that looks most like the truth, right? A counterfeit that looks most like the truth, and that is the most uh, dangerous kind of false teacher most dangerous false teacher today would be one who uh, talks like a Christian, looks like a Christian, probably has a church that he calls a Christian church, could be a pastor of a church, calls himself an evangelical, quotes the Bible, holds the Bible maybe in his hand or her hand, uh, uses the name Jesus, uses Christian cliches. 
uh, also particularly deceptive as a sheep. A sheep is what? Kind of meek, mild, non-threatening, and that's many times how false teachers come across, is non-threatening. They're appealing. Maybe they're charismatic. They're friendly. They're welcoming. They're hospitable. They have big, jovial smiles. They're winsome, good speakers, persuasive, easy to listen to. Oh, I like listening to that person. Oh, I like the tone of his voice. I like her sense of humor. Oh, they're entertaining. So all of these components can be used by Satan to use a false teacher to infiltrate the church. And many times, uh, many believers are just totally unaware that actually what they're listening to is false teaching or a false teacher. They look like sheep. Many times it is very hard to tell and discern. Is this a false teacher or not? Some, many times Christians aren't even thinking about it. Oh, I just said he was a pastor. Quotes from the Bible. thought this was the truth. But the fact that it's sheep's clothing, clothing speaks of the outward appearance. It's, it's a superficial veneer on the outside. It's at a human level. It's a facade. It's a front. It's a charade. It's a show. And many times it's hard to see through that. When I say all those adjectives, you know what I think of? I think of Hollywood movies. It's so easy to watch a Hollywood movie or a supposed biography and you are just convinced, oh, that's the way it happened. Oh, not necessarily. You've got to do your homework. So, um, But again, it, the emphasis here is they are deceptive primarily because of the outside, the way they talk, the words they use. But here's the key. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. On the, what really matters is on the inside. And he's talking about their nature. Their nature. They may look like a Christian, but on the inside, hmm. They're not born-again, Bible-believing Christian, loyal and true to God's Word. On the inside is what really matters. And by the way, uh, God is the one who only knows the heart on the inside. But there is a way to discern and see if someone is a false teacher. Jesus is going to tell us what that is in just a second. But he says, you know, be careful uh, on the inside. You don't really know that person. You know, we listen to Bible teachers on the radio. Oh, I love this Bible teacher. Oh, if... You know, our pastor was only like this Bible teacher, if, or so-and-so was only like this Bible teacher. Well, you don't live with the guy. You don't know the guy. There's a lot of people like that. We just we don't know them if they're at a distance. And false teachers put themselves more at a distance than anybody. They don't want people looking into their life, intruding into their life, and they purposely keep people at arm's length because they don't want to be exposed, because on the inside they are ravenous wolves. Very specific words Jesus uses here. Ravenous, that means greedy. They are insatiable. They aren't in the ministry uh, because of God's calling to be like Jesus. Jesus was first and foremost a servant. And if you are a Bible teacher, a minister in the church, uh, a pastor, an elder, first and foremost, you should be a servant of God and then a servant of the people. That's what your calling is. This vocation of being a pastor or a Bible teacher is not a for-profit vocation the vocation of service at least it's supposed to be to be like christ and to be serving serving the people loving the sheep tending the sheep protecting and leading and praying for the sheep and feeding the sheep and caring for the sheep putting the sheep first the servant leader in the words of jesus that's the exact opposite of what ravenous means ravenous is the nasb uh it also means greedy they're in it for themselves it's all about themselves uh, and also insatiable. They have an appetite that just can't be satisfied. And that's why their sin can just go from bad to worse to, to unthinkable and unbelievable because this sinful appetite can't be satiated or satisfied on the inside. And then it says they're wolves. And that just means one thing. They are vicious. 
They look mild. They look meek. They look like they're doing good. They look like they actually care for the people. In the end, actually, what they are doing, it might not even be intentional because they themselves could be deceived, but what they're actually doing by twisting the Word of God, using the Word of God for their own devices and their own advancement and their own pleasures and their own gain, that is destructive. It is absolutely destructive. What is destructive? False teaching. That's primarily what he's talking about. Unbiblical teaching, it is destructive to people's lives. You know what it does? Because false teaching, first and foremost, affects the thinking of a person. And everything we do in life goes back to our thinking and our thought life. So that's the number one way that Satan can effectively attack believers, is to tweak their thinking even just a little bit. Eventually, it becomes destructive undermines the Christian faith, can undermine all the fruits of the Spirit in a person's life. That's why they are so effective. So this is very serious, and Jesus says, beware. Beware. You've got to watch out for this. This needs to become a regular routine and discipline. The apostles all reiterated this in all of their epistles. This was a constant theme. This isn't just some isolated teaching that Jesus said because he was having a bad day. This is at the heart of true biblical Christianity because Satan is real, sin is real. Uh, just a couple of reminders, a couple of verses in light of this. First Thessalonians, if you've got your Bible, First Thessalonians 5, and then we'll look at Hebrews 13, 9, that reiterate the same truth of beware, beware, beware. First, Timothy, uh, First Thessalonians 5, 21, the Apostle Paul says this to the believers there in Thessalonica. And by the way, the Thessalonians, they were... They were obedient Christians. They, they were discerning Christians. They loved Paul. They had a great rapport. Paul was very pleased and blessed by this church. And yet, nevertheless, at the end, he knew they were vulnerable and said, be on guard. Watch out. First Thessalonians 5.21, he said, but examine everything carefully. Present tense. Keep on examining everything. Scrutinize everything. He's talking about teaching. Be a discriminating person, be a scrutinizing person, be a discerning person, be a proactive Christian of everything that's coming out the pike that you hear. Whether it's preached, written, whatever form it's coming in, examine everything and examine everything carefully. Hold and vet it all out. This is biblical. I keep this and I embrace it. This is unbiblical. Uh, I, I reject that. Hold fast to that which is good that you're blessed by. Hold fast. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. The number one evil is false teaching. Have nothing to do with it, reject it. So that's a command for every Christian. Let's look at this other one, uh, Hebrews 13, 9. Just keep flipping, going past uh, Timothy before James. And you've got Hebrew, the last uh, chapter in Hebrews 13, 9. It says this, do not be carried away. Do not be carried away. Kind of like a prisoner or you're caught off guard. You weren't paying attention. See, that's the problem. If you're not discerning, if you're not proactive, if you're not aware, if you're not informed, if you're not looking for it, you could be blindsided by false teaching. And as a result, carried away, kind of like a prisoner against your will. Passively, do not be carried away by what kind of teaching? By varied. False teaching comes in many various forms. And it has throughout all history. It's repackaged all the time. The same lies repackaged over and over and over and over and over and over again. Varied. And also get this strange teaching. Str- strange. St- that is key for us. How do you discern false teaching? 
Well, when you hear it, you th- your first impulse might be as a Christian is, well, that's strange. That's weird. That is, if you are in the Word and you know God's truth. Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you are a, a student of the Word of God and you're just drenched in God's truth and you're always in God's Word, you have your nose in His words, you love the Word of God, you, you hunger and thirst for God's truth in Scripture, it's vital to your life, you're in it daily, weekly, monthly, year after year, with the truth, with that which is accurate and from God. When something weird, different, or strange comes along, you, you'll be able to discern it and note it. You might not even be able to put your finger on it. It's just like, ooh, that's strange. That's weird. So I've been studying the Bible about 30 years, just consuming and taking in the Word of God. That's primarily what I focus on. Is just, I'll, just give me the Bible. I just want to know your Word, God. And then there are commentaries and those kind of things of godly men who help me understand the bible but jesus said know the truth know the truth and the truth will set you free so when that strange weird doctrine comes along you'll you'll be able to know been teaching at the cornerstone seminary up in vallejo for going on 10 years and every year most of these guys are pastors usually at little churches going through seminary and it seems like i always get questions about well what do you think of this teacher pastor cliff or professor cliff uh, and I usually don't know who they are, but they're famous and up and coming. Well, what about, well, and they, and they said this. And many times I said, ooh, that's weird. Or, ooh, that's strange. I don't know what to think about it. My only reaction, my gut reaction, that's strange. That's weird. I'm going to have to look that one up. But that just, mm, that doesn't sound right. And that's a mark of a false teacher. They're not giving pure doctrine that's consistent with the reservoir of God's truth that we have inscripturated in our Bible. Strange teaching strange and straying from god's truth so uh sometimes you're if you're a person of the word and you get a visceral reaction to something you hear sometimes that might be a red flag to check it out and vet it through scripture so go back to matthew 7 but this is our command we need to be aware we need to be examining we need to be conscious of false doctrine at any given time Let's go on to number two. Consider your standard of truth. So consider your source of truth. In other words, when, and by the way, I need to say that considering your source of truth is um, examine all the portals of information that are flowing into your life and into your mind as a Christian right now. All the venues by which you're accepting biblical truth. Whether It's the church you go to, the preacher you listen to at your church, the Sunday school class you're going to, Bible studies you attend, uh, not just Bible studies here. There's Bible studies all over the community Bible studies, B, BSF, and uh, lo- a lot more. So you've got to go to every venue where you're getting input of supposed tr- the television, Christian radio, Christian television, uh, the Christian bookstore, Christian books that you're reading, Christian books that some supposedly Christian books that people are giving you. People give me books all the time. Here, you got to read this, Pastor Cliff. Here, read this, read this, read this, read this. Um, so you've got that, those are the sources that you've got to be aware of and examine everything. You can't let your guard down. Oh, it's a Christian bookstore, so everything in there is good, legit, and good for me. No. Oh, this is a Christian radio, so everything on here must be good, healthy, and pure. No. As a matter of fact, it was uh, back in October. I was on the road and in a town here in California, and they, there was a, a Christian bookstore that caught my eye because Christian bookstores are going out of existence. This was a big Christian bookstore. I think it was called, I, don't, I can't remember, the Carpenter or something like that. And 
So I went in there, and it was pretty large, and there were some books I recognized, and there were some Bibles, and then they had a huge display of the best or the top Christian bestsellers in the last decade. There's about 15 books there. The best Christian books that have been produced in the last 10 or 15 years. And I went up and I looked at the, and I was aghast. I was like, oh, I almost had a heart attack. Yikes, these are the best. We are in trouble. The church is in trouble. Christians are deceived. If this is, and I am not exaggerating. Just every single one of them. At least the ones that I knew. And one of, this person is not even a Christian and it's on the bookshelf. Wow. And then several, I didn't even know. And I pick it up and I'm looking at them. Who's the author? Where did they go to seminary? Uh, many of them, they don't go to seminary. I don't know where they got their training. And so I just, I, I did a little test. I said, okay, I'm just going to pick a random book off the shelf. I'm going to open it up at random. And I'm going to start reading. And I, I want to know how long will it be before I find something unbiblical. So I pulled one off the shelf, opened it up. And reading, I think I got two paragraphs. And it, it was horrific. Uh, and this guy who's a pastor said, Christian, and it was about prayer. This chapter is on prayer. Your prayer, every prayer you pray is a prophecy of God. And it's a prophecy that God is obligated to fulfill and he will. And it, just, it got worse from there. Thinking, wow, that, that's horrible. Many of my, I don't think, no, none of, I'm going to say this categorically, none of my prayers are prophecies. None of them. I'm not a prophet. Many of my prayers are self-centered totally unbiblical and god needs to vet my prayers tell me no many times because i am self-centered shallow myopic operating many times in the heat of the moment the here and now not according to god's plan so and then i just he was sad sad we need to be discerning so this is very practical advice for us so consider your source of truth also you need to be like the brains just because i'm standing up here preaching you, you've got to discern what i'm saying as well you've got to take what i say and put it up against it's scripture as well you've got to be a berean those christians who even tested the apostle paul okay paul says he's an apostle is it consistent with scripture okay yes it is so that's due diligence that you're doing whoever's up here preaching whoever teaches at gbf in a sunday school class not all of us are infallible here at gbf we need to be put to the test of scripture. Ooh, somebody knew i was kidding it was a joke so that's a healthy discipline. Ask questions. Is this really in the Bible? Is this what you meant? Um, I have learned from many of you in those kind of discussions. Uh, so we'll go back to number two. After considering your source of truth, now consider your standard of truth, 16 through 20. 16 through 20 goes together because in verse 16, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. You will know these false prophets. See the expectation that Jesus has? If you're a Christian, if you're a true disciple, if you've been born again, if you love the Word of God, know the Word of God, study the Word of God, inevitably, eventually, you will know a false teacher when you see or hear them. That's the good news. Maybe not right away. Maybe it'll take some help. Maybe it'll take some time. But you will know them. Yes, God is the only one that knows the heart, the inner, inward recesses of that false teacher and their condition before God. But you will know them by their fruits. The fruit is what they produce in their life through their words, the content of their teaching, and also the morality of their life on a long-term basis. They are not regenerate. If they are false, in time they will expose themselves by their inconsistency and self-centered living. That's Jesus' guarantee. You will know them by their fruits. And then verse 20 says, you will know them by their fruits. He says it twice 
So that's a, a section that goes together and he's reiterating it and being emphatic. You will know. You can know. You can have objective standards by which to gauge false teaching when you see it and hear it in your life. And this is expected of Jesus. You will know them, these false prophets. You will know them, these false prophets. Verse, it's kind of interesting. He says in verse 16, you will know them, these false prophets. And then verse 20, you will know them, these false prophets. And then in verse 23, at judgment day, he says, I never knew you. I never knew them. So it's a play on words and a different usage. We'll get to that. But you will know these false prophets. Uh, how do we know false prophets? By their fruits. And the fruit. Well, what are the fruits in their life? I think it's primarily their teaching, the content of their teaching. That's why you've got to get past the superficialities of the tone of their voice or how they dress or, wow, their church is so big. That is awesome. It is growing like crazy. That is not a standard or measure of truth. So we have to put away the superficial humanistic standards of assessing truth. That has nothing to do with it. How they talk, whether they're winsome, how they dress, how they smile, how many books they sell, how many other Christians endorse their teaching. That's a big one. That's not a standard. It's by their fruit. And the fruit is the content of what they're teaching. And out of that flows the walk of their life, their ethics, their lack of integrity. The compromises in their life. It, it's always there. But it's hard to get into their personal life and get through all the bodyguards and as they're at a distance, isolating themselves as they don't want accountability in their life. It's so typical of a false prophet. But you will know them by their fruits. Uh, so fruit is something tangible. Fruit is the end result of the root. The fruit determines the root of a tree, of a bush. Tree could be a foot tall. It's green. It's got leaves. You have no idea what kind of tree is that. You're not going to know what kind of tree it is, what the root is, what the DNA is, what's on the inside until it produces the fruit, which comes with time. And that's the same with false teachers. With time, they will be exposed. They are going to produce fruit. They're going to produce false teaching and a false lifestyle, contrary to God's word. And that's how we can know them by their fruit. Look at their fruits. Look at their teaching and vet it through Scripture. And Jesus gives an illustration using uh, grapes and bushes and trees which was relevant to their culture and how they lived uh, in their day grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles are they so every good tree every good prophet every true teacher of god's word will bear good fruit they'll have good teaching it will be biblical and their life will match their teaching in terms of the direction of their life not the perfection of their life, there aren't any except Jesus. It's the direction of their life. It's the long haul of their life. So every good tree, every good teacher, every good Bible teacher will bear good fruit, sound doctrine. Sound means healthy, that's all. Sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, good doctrine, pure doctrine, biblical truth will bear good fruit. But the bad tree, the bad teacher, the false teacher will produce bad fruit, false teaching that is unbiblical, that is contrary to grace, says Hebrews 13.9, by the way. False teaching is contrary to grace, contrary to grace. Uh, that's key in discerning false teaching, if you're listening to somebody or not. Grace, what are they talking about? Grace. grace has everything to do with God. It's all of God. Grace means we deserve nothing, we earned nothing, we have nothing apart from God. So somebody who's teaching contrary to grace is speaking about human achievement and you are good and you are capable and you can do it and love yourself and believe in yourself and on and on. Whereas a doctrine of grace 
where is the emphasis, is all about God and all about Christ and all that he did and glorifies and exalts Christ and him and his word and the sinfulness of humanity. So that's a good litmus test of a false teacher. Hebrews 13.9, I didn't read the rest of that verse. But that's the emphasis. That would be good fruit. Good fruit is truth that is grace-oriented, which means all of God. It puts humanity in in the proper place. We are fallen, sinful, wicked, evil, self-centered. God is all good, all grace. It's all about Christ and all of everything he did, not about what we did. Um, so every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. So bad fruit is usually bad teaching. It's unbiblical teaching. It's humanistic teaching, says Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul. It's humanly originated. It's not directly from Scripture based on exegesis and exposition of the Bible. Human opinion, wise, impressive, logical, appealing human wisdom, but it's human wisdom nonetheless it's human centered it's anthropocentric feel good tickle the ears that's bad fruit verse 18 a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and uh, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so basically what jesus is saying is he's going to deal with false teaching and false teachers that's how severe it is and dangerous and destructive it deserves god's punishment so then you will know them by their fruit. So be discerning. It's kind of interesting. Matthew 7, verse 1, is the number one quoted verse in the world and in the universe probably, and it has been for the last 2,000 years, and primarily by either unbelievers or Christians who don't like being held accountable. Do not judge, lest ye be judged. Well, it doesn't stop there. Jesus isn't, he isn't saying, don't ever judge, don't ever be discerning, don't ever uh, discriminate, don't ever hold anybody accountable. If you keep reading the passage, he says, after saying, do not be judged lest you be judged, he says, first, deal with your own sin and hypocrisy until you are objectively, spiritually in a position to judge your fellow brother, then judge them according to Scripture. So it's not a categorical we're never to judge because in verse 5 of chapter 7, he says, judge. When you can be objective, controlled by the Spirit, according to truth, then judge your brother. And so here also, we are commanded to judge. Judge false teaching, judge false prophets. We don't judge their motive, their heart, only God knows that. We judge the fruit they produce. So I can talk about a false teacher, like Paul does and Jesus does, by name in the Bible. I'm not talking about them personally or where they're at with God. It's I'm talking about their false teaching, their bad fruit that is leading people astray. It's leading people to hell, but it's also undermining believers in their Christian life. And worst of all, it is blaspheming God and Jesus the Savior. That's why this is so serious. So beware, consider your source of truth, consider your standard of truth. And the standard of truth, by the way, is Scripture, that's how we can assess whether the fruits are legitimate or not. That's the standard. It is the Bible and only the Bible. It's not personal experience, popular opinion, church history, church tradition, the standard of a denomination, church creeds, the reformers. John Calvin said, doesn't matter what John Calvin said. What does the Bible say? I like John Calvin. Doesn't matter what he said. What does the Bible say? What did Jesus say? That's the standard of truth. It's the only standard of truth. I quoted it earlier. Jesus said, know the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth is Jesus, and the truth is Jesus' word that for now us is in Scripture. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. So Scripture is the standard. Scripture is the truth. That helps us discern what is false, what is true. Only the Bible. Look at Ephesians 4. 
uh, 14, on considering your standard of truth. Here the Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesian Christians uh, in a pagan culture. And that's kind of parallel for us. We live in a pagan culture, so this is appropriate for us. Ephesians 4, 14. He's talking to people who've been born again, who've been saved. They believe the gospel. They embrace the gospel. Church has been established. Paul pastored there for three years. Nevertheless, they need this warning. As a result, we are no, we Christians are no longer to be children. We're not supposed to be immature. Children are what? They are naive. They are immature. They are undiscerning. Many times they can't discriminate what is healthy and what is unhealthy. Yes, Daddy, I want 32 chocolate donuts for breakfast. Well, that's very immature and unhealthy. It tastes good. But, man, I, I'm with you. Is Mom home? Uh, but anyway... As a result, we are no longer to be like spiritually like children, immature, undiscerning, naive, don't see the big picture, not paying attention, overly welcoming to everybody and everything coming down the pike. And when you're spiritually immature, you're tossed to and fro by false teaching. You're all over the map. Oh, this preacher said this and this preacher said this. And here's the latest fad over here. And here's the best-selling Christian book over here. Oh, I got to hear that one and be with the in crowd and do with. Oh, here's the new Christian program and the new Christian hype and the new Christian this and the new Christian movement and the new. That's what it's talking about. You are all over the place. There's no stability in your life as a Christian. And it all comes down to your thinking of what you're hearing about truth and the lack thereof. As a result, we are no longer to be grow up Christian. Be discerning. Think biblically. That's what he's saying. If you're not, you're going to be tossed uh, here and there by waves and carried about, notice, by what? By every wind of doctrine, by every teaching that is supposedly Christian coming down the pike. So the emphasis is on teaching and how we think. Love the Lord your God with all your mind in accordance with truth by the trickery of Ben, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Going back to Matthew chapter 7. So we've got to grow up. This is about spiritual maturity. A mark of spiritual maturity is being a discerning person. You're not just believing everything you see and hear that's supposedly Christian. Our standard of truth is God's word. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. Go on to number three. After considering your source of truth, your standard of truth, the Bible, then consider submission to truth. Jesus makes a transition from false prophets now to false people. These are professing Christians. They lived their whole life. They said they were followers of Jesus. They went to church. They got involved in discipleship and memorizing the Bible, some teaching Bible, some ministering in the name of Jesus Christ their whole life long. And these are, in the end, they pe- people who lived their whole life thought they were Christians. They're even after they're dead and before the throne of Jesus, they still think they are believers, but they're not. These people are self-deceived. This has got to be the most sobering, frightening, scary passage in the, in the Bible, in my opinion. Being self-deceived to this degree. Verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. It's not just about a profession. You can't just, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe in the Bible. Oh, I go to church. There's all kinds of people who say Jesus is Lord who are not Christians. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So it's more than a profession. The profession, Lord, Lord, is not a bad thing. We should say Jesus is Lord. That's what. Romans 10 says, we should say, Jesus is Lord. But saying it is not sufficient. 
saying it alone and only that when it's a superficial profession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, will, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian is going to get into heaven because not everyone who professes to be a Christian is a Christian. There are many people professing to be believers. They are not believers. And many of these people are self-deceived. They truly think they are saved. That's why this is so frightening. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one, here it is, who does the will of my Father. It's not what you say, it is what you do. And it's not, when he says it's what you do, it's not human works. It's not self-righteousness works. It's something specific we do. And the one thing that we do do to be a true believer or to become a believer is to do the will of God. And Jesus said in John 6, an amazing statement that he made among the crowds in Jerusalem while he was teaching. And some of his critics were saying, well, what must we do then to work the works of God? The Pharisees who thought earning God's favor was by doing their own fastidious works. It's all about them. What must we do then? What else must I do on top of all that I'm doing? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what you must do. I'll tell you the work of God. Here is the work of God. The work of God is to believe in his son. Isn't that amazing? The work of God is to believe in his son. The work of God is to believe in the works of Jesus. It's not my works that get me to heaven. It's Jesus' works that get me to heaven. It's to believe Jesus. The work of God is to believe in his son. That's in John 6. To believe in Jesus means believe not just in who he is, but everything he taught, everything he said. Uh, The New Testament was given by Jesus through his disciples. So when Jesus says, here's the work of God, believe in the son, that means believe the words of the son. That means believe the New Testament, believe who Jesus has been revealed as in scripture. That is the work of God. Knowing who Jesus is as the God man knowing how he came to die on a cross for sinners, knowing what he taught about humanity, that it is corrupt, that we are all born sinful, separated from God, enemies of God, children of wrath. We need to be born again. We need to submit and bow our knee to God the Father who is a holy God. We need to come to Jesus Christ and ask him for forgiveness of sin because he is the God-man who died on a cross willingly even though he never sinned as the substitute of sinful humanity. He was buried. He rose again supernaturally from the dead, proving that he was the Lord of the universe, having power over Satan and death itself and even eternal hell. He reigns on high as the the Savior and King of kings of the world and is calling out to sinners even today, asking them to repent and come to him. That is the work of God. And if you believe that, you will enter the kingdom of God. It's not what you do. It's not what I do. It is what Jesus did on our behalf. Amen? That is the work of God. And that's what he's talking about. And their emphasis, these false professors, the reason they're deceived, look at their justification and their reason for why they should get into heaven. What do you mean we're not getting into heaven? What do you mean? We don't know you as Lord personally. He gives the revelation. Going on to the next point, verse 22 and 23, which is number four, consider the Savior of truth. He says, many will say to me on that, that is sad. Not just a few people are going to be deceived at Judgment Day. That day is Judgment Day. It's the end of the universe. Every human being born into this world must face, at some point, it is inescapable, the Lord Jesus Christ reigning in glory as the King of the universe in all eternity. Every human being will face Him, whether they believe it or not. And this is that day that He's talking about. That day will come. 
Many who face him, they will have been lifelong atheists and agnostics. But that is not who he's talking about here. He is talking about people who lived their whole life as professing believers. Grew up in the church, served in the church. Their parents were in the church. They grew up in a Christian home, maybe. And then they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many who are self-deceived in that day. Many will say to me on that day, Judgment Day, Lord, Lord. And notice what they emphasize. They don't say, I did the works of God. I believed in you, Jesus, as the Savior. I believed that I was a sinner and wicked and helpless without you. And I cried out to you asking you to save me. They don't say that. Here's what I did. Here's why I should be in, in heaven entering the kingdom. Because of what I did, my works, Jesus. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? And your name perform many miracles. These are all works and they're religious, spiritual works. It's their little checklist like a Pharisee. Here are all the things that I did. I did religion. I did Christianity. I went through the motions. It's from a human works oriented perspective. It's all about me. Works righteousness. They missed the boat. We can't do anything to earn salvation. We can't do anything on our part to earn forgiveness of sin. It is all And only what Jesus did on the cross that matters. And our response to it. By the way, the works that they did aren't bad works. Prophesying miracles and casting out demons, ironically, that is what Jesus did. But he did it with the right motive. He did it in the right power. There are satanic powers available to unbelievers who can wield those satanic powers to actually do miracles. That's been true all throughout history. So just because you see a supposed miracle... Doesn't mean it's true. Doesn't mean it was a true prophet where that happened. Oh, the congregation, there were 5,000 people and glitter began falling down from the ceiling. It was so heavenly. Mm, mm, I don't know about that. That sounds strange. That sounds weird. It's not about the works. It's about the will of God, believing in Christ, believing in his word. Not what we do, but what he did. And sadly, Jesus says in verse 23, then, and then this is going to happen. This is reality. This is the future. This is so sad. And, and then I will declare to the many, the many people who believed they were believers and Christians. So this tells you who Jesus is. He's not just a man. He has the authority to consign people to heaven or hell. He is the king of the universe. As the God man, he says, then I, notice not the father, All judgment has been given to the Son, Jesus said in John 5, and that's why Jesus is doing this, not the Father. Jesus has earned this right by resurrection, and the Father glorified him as such and delegated all future judgment to the Lord Jesus because of his obedience in the incarnation. And as a result, he is the only judge of every soul. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And the word therefore know is a personal relationship with someone. It's not just... He wasn't aware of him. He is omniscient. He knows everybody. The word know here speaks of personal intimacy of a very intimate and close relationship of someone that you love. As a matter of fact, uh, love is a great synonym for the word know. In the Septuagint of the Old Testament in Genesis 4.1, it says that Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. That is the closest kind of intimacy that a man and woman can have. It's the same usage of the same Greek word right here. I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. You didn't, you didn't know me personally. You never bowed the knee to me. You were never born again. You never uh, 
admitted your sin and asked me to save you personally. You never recognized me truly for who I am as the God-man and the only Savior and recognized your own sinfulness and need of me. I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. This confuses people sometimes. Oh, uh, they were a Christian their whole life and then they're not a Christian anymore and they lost their salvation. They did not lose their salvation. This is the answer. They were never a Christian in the first place. Judas is prime example number one. For three years, Jesus was handpicked by Jesus. He was a disciple, trained, went to Jesus' seminary for three years. Uh, Jesus, uh, Judas cast out demons. He preached in the name of Jesus. He was the treasurer of the group. He was trusted with their money. He traveled everywhere they went. He claimed to be a friend of Jesus. And after three years, Jesus says, we have a devil among us, among the 12 apostles. And none of the other 11 apostles even suspected Judas because they just thought he was a believer just as much as everybody else. And yet he was never transformed or regenerate. He was never saved in the first place. He was a devil from the beginning. That's what Jesus said in John. He was never saved. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He never had salvation to begin with. And Judas wasn't just a deceiver. Judas was self-deceived. That's why it's so sad. Judas truly and sincerely believed he was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ two years into Jesus' ministry. That's why he was racked and overwhelmed with guilt after three years when he betrayed Jesus. Because he was so confused and deluded. What have I done? And he committed suicide. He was self-deceived. Not only was he self-deceived, he was deceived by Satan himself because that's what the Gospel of John says as well. So here's a prime example of who's going to be there. That is Judas, who fits this model. Although Judas has been exposed prior to this judgment, many are going to hear it for the first time in heaven on the last day before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is shocking. This is sobering. This is frightening. And it's supposed to be. And it's the truth. And Jesus is telling this to believers. And he wants us to be warned, to examine our own life, starting with who are we listening to? What kind of teaching are we imbibing and abiding by how often are we in the pure word of god that is milk and meat for the soul undiluted and then also are we examining our own selves why why do i think i'm a christian is it based on what i do my service the works i do the people i serve what i do in church my role in church is that where i find my identity if that's where you find your identity then you are self-deceived that is frightening that is scary it's not about you. It's not about me. It is all about Jesus Christ and what he did. We have to continually examine ourselves in light of that so that we are not self-deceived. And by the way, Scripture is clear. You don't have to live in fear the rest of your life thinking, mm, I wonder if I'm really a Christian or not. You can be secure in your salvation in this life. That's what Scripture says. You can be certain of your salvation. That's 1 John chapter 5. If you are in the Word, you know God's truth, you're living an obedient life, you're trusting in Christ, you're daily confessing your sin to Jesus. I'll say it again. If you are daily confessing your sin to Jesus, broken over your personal sin, that's going to help. That is going to help give you clarity before your relationship with God. If you are going weeks and months and years without examining yourself and being very specific and honest about the own personal sin in your life, you're on the road to being self-deceived. That's why 1 John 1.9 is so appropriate. It says we need to be confessing our sin every day, all the time. It makes us sensitive before our Savior. Every single one of us. And if we're doing that 
the truth of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit will comfort you and give you not just an objective certainty, but a subjective experiential certainty that you are in the family of God. And you can cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's Romans 8. So we can know definitively and for sure that we are true believers. We don't have to live in fear in light of the people who are talked about in this passage. Well, with that, let's go ahead. We have the privilege now to go to communion. Uh, And before we have communion, by the way, if you are a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ personally, meaning if you believe Jesus is the only Savior, that he is the God-man, that he came here from heaven to die on the cross as a substitute for your sin, to appease the Father. And if you believe that Jesus was buried and rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and you have cried out to Jesus and asked him to forgive you and save you, you've repented of your sin. That's what I mean if you're a believer. So if you believe that and you've appropriated that in your own life, then Jesus says you are welcome to celebrate communion. Because communion is remembering the death that he did on your behalf and on my behalf. And we do it together as a body. And it is a celebration of the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we have communion, let me go ahead and read what the Apostle Paul said to remind us of this ordinance that Jesus gave the church. That he said to do regularly, do communion. Somebody asked me a good question last week. How how come GBF has communion only once a month? And I, I'm the, like the senior pastor dude at this church. So I should know the answer, right? Why does GBF only have communion once a month? I said, I, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, because we've always been doing that way. But we don't always do it that way. Sometimes we'll do it differently. But uh, I think the biblical mandate is it needs to be done often or frequently. Frequently enough as a reminder of the great work Jesus has done on our behalf. And recognizing that corporately as a church. And so here's what the Apostle Paul said about communion for i received from the lord jesus that which i also delivered to you as a church that the lord jesus in the night in which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me so eat eat the bread and remember that i i lived for you and i died for you i am your savior in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying uh this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me so the The drink represents his blood that was shed on our behalf as a a substitute. And with that, the new covenant blessing that the Holy Spirit would come and live inside of us uh, once we became Christians. What a reason to celebrate. We have the Spirit with us at all times. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you make a proclamation. That's what we're doing. We're making a corporate proclamation of how glorious Jesus is. And we keep doing this until uh, he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In an unworthy manner is just in a, a flippant way. Or, and we don't want to do that. We want to be reverent. We want to be thoughtful. We want to be prayerful. So I ask as we have communion, grab the cup, grab the bread, go back to your seat. Hold it until we're all ready. And in your own heart, you can be praying to the Lord, thanking Jesus for his death and resurrection on your behalf, for the forgiveness, the salvation he's imparted to you as a child of God. Um, and that's the greatest way to celebrate. So let me go ahead and Say a, a prayer to the Lord. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to to celebrate salvation provided by Jesus Christ on a very personal level for those of us who know you. And God, we give you the glory. We thank you for ongoing forgiveness of sin and security we have in our relationship with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.